0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Recovery Road, the intersection of life and sobriety. I am your host, Jareth Rossman. Well, we've made it to Episode 9. On today's episode, I want to discuss the following. First, I'll continue my sober living journey specifically with two stories, one that I think really illustrates the madness of addiction and alcoholism, and the second, well, we're going to call that one a feel-good story. Next, I want to give my thoughts on a topic that many people face, especially when new to recovery, and that topic is how to still be social and make new friends when living a life of sobriety. And really, this can apply to anyone. And lastly, I want to talk about one of my most favorite books of all time, Atomic Habits by James Clear, and how you can apply those same principles to my favorite topic, The Daily Five. So let's get started. So, it's around my third week in sober living, and everything seemed to be going really well at this point. I had a fairly structured daily routine, I was working the 12 steps with my sponsor, I was elected house treasurer, and soon enough, I'd be graduating to level 2 in the house. And with this highest honor, I'd be allowed to sleep out one night every week moving forward. I mean, what more could a 33-year-old guy ask for? And then something really cool happened that week. A good buddy of mine from treatment moved into the house. I was excited to have him because I was no longer a rookie in the house and could use all of my vast experience to show him the ropes. Now this guy was younger than me. Much younger. He was probably 21 or 22 at the time. But for some reason, we just really hit it off in treatment and always got along. He was a super funny dude and just always seemed to be in a good mood. And to top it off, he loved Oreos as much as I did. Now, where we differed was our DOC or drug of choice. Obviously, my DOC was vodka. And his, well his DOC was heroin. And you'd never know it by looking at him. But that's the scary and crazy thing about addiction. It has no standardized appearance. It comes in all shapes, forms, and sizes. So when he first got into the house, I kind of took him under my wing. He didn't have a car at first, so he'd go to AA meetings with me and I'd bring him to the store for groceries or help him get around town to apply for different jobs. Then, after about 4 or 5 days of him being in the house, I remember him telling me that he wanted to join the gym. As well, I was really proud of him. He seemed to be taking his sobriety really seriously. That same day, he asked if I would bring him to the store to get some headphones for the gym, then to Walmart so he could collect some money his dad had sent him through Western Union. So later that afternoon, I brought him to Walmart and we made plans that next day to hit a noon meeting, then the gym after so he could enroll in a membership. I wake up that next morning and head out to do some volunteer work I had agreed to that morning. Around 10 a.m., I sent him a text letting him know what time I'd be back at the house to pick him up. About an hour goes by and no response. Okay, no big deal. He's probably doing some work around the house. I'll just head there when I'm done. So I get back to the house around 11.30 and he's nowhere to be found. So I try calling him. Again, no response. Oh well, he's probably with the house manager or something. I'll just bring him to the gym tomorrow. So I leave the house and go about my day. Well, a few hours goes by and I try calling him again. This time his cell phone's off. Uh Uh-oh, that's not good. Eventually, I reach out to the house manager and ask if he's heard from him. His answer? Nobody's heard from him, including his parents, and everyone's really concerned. Immediately, your mind goes to the worst, and for good reason. We're alcoholics and addicts. We have the keen ability to quickly get ourselves into dangerous and sometimes fatal situations. Well, after a couple of days, they finally find him. And as always, there's good news and bad news. The good news? He was alive. The bad news? Well, remember how I brought him to Walmart to get that Western Union from his dad to buy groceries and enroll at the gym? While it sounded good in theory, my buddy, well, he apparently had other plans. At some point after getting the money, he contacted another fellow from rehab who was also a heroin addict who also had just recently gotten out of treatment. He arranged for that guy to come from out of town about an hour away to pick him up that next morning. And that next morning, they would head back out of town and spend the next few days merrily shooting heroin. Then, when they'd run out of money, they'd start stealing from local drugstores to trade the items for more heroin. Then, finally after doing this for a few days, the other guy decided he was no longer going to fund both of their addictions. So when my buddy was in the store stealing more stuff, the other fella took off in the car full of stolen goods and pieced on out of there. So there my buddy was, in a random town, at a random store, high on heroin, with a pocket full of stolen goods but without a car, phone, or earthly idea of what to do next. Now thankfully... Eventually, his mom was able to get him before something catastrophic happened. But, unfortunately, he wasn't heading back to the house. At least not yet. He was heading back to treatment for another 14-day cleansing process. And that's something else I want you to know. Typically, if you were just recently in treatment and need to go back, you generally don't stay the full 30 days. What you'll do is the fast track program, which is typically about two weeks. I think the idea is to allow your body to detox, then examine what caused your relapse in hopes of helping you avoid or navigate that trigger moving forward but there's no sense in staying 30 days and going through family week and graduation week all over again. At least not if you just recently completed them both. And just so you know, the 14-day option is fairly popular due to the percentage of relapse for people immediately after getting out of treatment. And actually, it isn't always immediately, but most studies show that 40-60% to 60% of people relapse within the first 30 days of leaving inpatient treatment and up to 85% relapse within the first Now, I want you to know that I use these stories for a purpose. Primarily to give you an understanding and a first-hand glimpse into the madness and insanity of addiction. Think about this story. This young guy still has his whole life in front of him, and with almost six weeks of sobriety, he should be ready to conquer the world. And he was. Until he wasn't. And you know what I think triggered him to immediately want to go shoot heroin again? The money. Just having a couple hundred bucks in his pocket. As soon as he picked up the money, the decision was made. Remember when I said in a previous episode that the decision to drink or drug again is made well before the actual act of drinking or drugging happens? Well, this is the perfect example. Once he made that decision in his mind, there was nothing you or I or anyone could do to stop him. Why? Because it's silent, meaning nobody knows that's his intention, unless he decides to share his urge with someone anyone, hopefully his sponsor, which is highly encouraged in treatment and the sobriety community. Share your urges. Reach out to someone. Don't tackle this alone. But unfortunately, based on the statistics I mentioned above, that isn't always the case. Now, I want to transition to another important event that happened in my third week of sober living. Remember when I previously said I had all these fears about turning my phone back on? Well, eventually I did turn it back on, and slowly but surely I started reaching out to people back home. The word was getting out about where I had been, so people were reaching out to me, and it was all very positive and loving, which again, anxiety, fear of the unknown, what's its purpose? Rarely do things turn out as bad as we make them out in our own head. Anyways, back to what I was saying... So people were reaching out, and one day I get a text from a girl back home. We're going to call her Amanda for the sake of not revealing her identity. Now, I had known Amanda for a few years at this point. We actually met very shortly after my breakup I mentioned in episode 7, which was about 3 years before I ended up in treatment. Just to give you guys some context from a timeline perspective. I'll never forget it. I walked in the bar and immediately start scanning the crowd, much like I was doing last episode when looking for my sponsor. Except, you know, this time I'm at a bar, not an AA meeting, and I'm looking for girls instead of a dude. Anyways, I'm scanning the bar and I saw the Amanda girl. She was the most beautiful girl I had ever seen. I was like, holy smokes, who is that? Now, she was way too pretty to just walk up to, but as fate would have it, we had some mutual friends in common, and just my luck, we got introduced, and as always, there's good news and bad news. But this story has good news, bad news, then a little more bad news, then even more badder news, then good news. And yes, I know, badder is not a word. Let's start with the initial bad news. Well, I'm a scrub. And every dude in here is trying to talk to her. But the good news? Remember when I said if I put my mind to something, I usually make it happen? Well, eventually, we did go out on a couple of dates. Now, for the more bad news? I was in the beginning stages of laying the foundation to my eventual alcoholism. And honestly, she was the first person to actually recognize it. Now, don't get me wrong. She had a little crazy in her as well. And still does. Love you, honey. Her nickname back then was AWOL, and our nickname together, well, J-Wall. So, you can imagine. But, anyways, my point is is that I was in no place to be in a healthy relationship with anyone. I was too out of control. And to spare you all of the juicy details and crazy stories, I'm going to fast forward three years to the even more badder news and a very specific incident. It was about four months before I ended up in treatment, and it was Amanda's birthday. A bunch of her friends were going to dinner, then out after, and her mom was coming. And I had never met her mom up to this point. Needless to say, I had been drinking vodka all day and made a complete ass of myself that night. In front of everyone. I don't even remember any of it. I just remember waking up to a phone call from Amanda the next morning, saying she couldn't handle it anymore and she never wanted to talk to me again. And remember, we weren't dating, just friends. So how bad off do you have to be for a friend to tell you that they never want to speak to you again? And my response? See you later. I immediately chugged a bunch of vodka and drove straight to New Orleans and got completely smashed all weekend. And to give you more perspective from a timeline standpoint, four months later, I was in treatment. So now that you have a little context about our history, let's fast forward back to what I was saying a few minutes ago. I guess through word of mouth or her own assumptions, Amanda figured out I had been in treatment. And lo and behold, I get a text from Amanda. I guess she decided that she was going to speak to me after all. And for the good news, after five years of a lot of ups and some downs, because no relationship is perfect, I get to marry the most beautiful girl I had ever seen eight years ago and still true to this day. But the best part about her is that she is even more beautiful on the inside. To know her is to love her. Ask anyone that does know her. And she has supported me and guarded my recovery and sobriety as if it were her own. And she listens and supports all of my crazy ideas, like this podcast. If you haven't realized by now, I'm a bit of an extremist and it's a lot to handle at times. So I know I'm truly the luckiest and most blessed guy in the world and I can't wait to watch her walk down that aisle. Okay, so enough of the lovey-dovey stuff. I want to switch my focus to something I see being talked about a lot, especially for people new to recovery, so I'm a member of a few online sobriety forums where people can go to ask questions about recovery or just seek sobriety advice. And one of the most common questions asked is how do you still have fun and meet people while living a life of sobriety? And honestly, it's a great question because so much of what we do socially involves, well, alcohol, especially in the South. Going to your best friend's two-year-old birthday party? Probably going to be alcohol there. Going to dinner with friends? Probably going to be alcohol there. Going to a run club on Tuesday nights? Yep. There's alcohol there. Going to a happy hour with work friends after work? Well, you get my drift. And that's not to mention the weddings, the football games, the Christmas parties. It's almost unheard of to go to any major social function and alcohol not be involved. And I get it. Alcohol is society's social lubricant. It helps lighten the mood, it makes people more talkative, it makes people better dancers, it makes people more attractive, it makes people friendlier to others. And have you ever wondered why that is? Well, I was listening to an episode of Rogan's podcast with a guy by the name of Edward Slingerland. I probably just completely butchered that. Anyway, he's a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia with a focus on Chinese philosophy. Needless to say, he's an educated man. He was talking about the Chinese philosophy of wu-wei, which is essentially the American idea of being in the zone. You know, trying without trying. And the reason he was so fascinated is because optimal performance tends to happen when people are quote-unquote in the zone. He was explaining how he's done all this research on brain functionality and how it impacts (laughs) wu-wei. Hang in with me here. I'm getting to my point. Throughout all of his research, he began to study the impacts of alcohol on the brain, especially the prefrontal cortex. And the reason being is because the primary functions of the prefrontal cortex are helping people reason and helping people make decisions. And what he discovered was this. You probably see this with your children, but do you remember as a young child how curious you were? You'd smile at strangers, walk up to strangers, play with anything you could get your hands on? Well, that's because children have a very undeveloped prefrontal cortex, which leads them to be more curious, more accepting, more loving, and just overall more interested in new things and people. And does this sound like grown adults when they are sipping a certain type of beverage? Well, of course it does, because that's what Edward figured out. Alcohol, up to a certain point, minimizes the functionality of our prefrontal cortex and basically turns us into little children. Which is why we are more talkative, better dancers, friendlier, flirtier. Which is great, right? But like with anything, there's a tipping point. Because after a certain point, more talkative becomes screaming. Better dancing becomes falling over. Flirtier becomes, well, we know what that can lead to. My point to all of this was to explain why alcohol is so prevalent in our society, especially socially. That's never going to change, so you have a choice to make. For some people, at least in the beginning, they'd rather avoid the temptations altogether. If that's the case and you still want to be social, just shift your idea of social pick up new hobbies, volunteer, join a service organization. I promise you, you'll meet a bunch of like-minded people and make new friends in the process. And generally, with these types of activities, alcohol will not be involved. And on top of that, you'll be giving back so you'll be bettering yourself at the same time. It's a win-win. The other choice you can make? Well, that's the choice I made at least in the beginning. And that choice was to attend all of the same social functions as I had before. Bachelor parties, tailgates, dinner, then bar hopping with friends. In my mind, this was my problem. Nobody else's. So I was going to tackle it head on. And honestly, it was tough. Nobody wants to talk to the sober guy. I mean, they do at the beginning of the night, but the more inebriated people get, the more they want to talk to people on their same level. What do they say? Water seeks its own level? And trust me, I was the same way in my drinking days, but now it just seemed like everyone was having more fun than me at these events because they were. But over time, I learned something. While they were having more fun in the moment, I would have more fun in the morning the next morning, because I could wake up fresh and attack the day. So honestly, it's a win-win to me these days. I can still have fun at these types of events, but I never have to worry about being too hungover to accomplish anything the next day. And the funny thing is that over time, my choice has transitioned to the first one mentioned above. I've switched my idea of social. Instead of happy hours and tailgates, I'd sincerely rather sit in service organization meetings and utilize my free time to help others or better myself. And I'm not saying that people that do any of the social activities mentioned above don't also give back and help others or better themselves. I'm just trying to give insight to people who may be walking a road of recovery or considering a life of sobriety. You can still have fun and you can still be social, but like with anything, it's just a shift in mindset. And with that being said, It's that part of the episode where I shift my focus to my favorite topic, the Daily Five. And today, I'm really excited because today, I'm going to simultaneously discuss one of my favorite books, Atomic Habits by James Clear. Now, I have to be honest, I'm not very bright. My whole life, I just assumed that the word atomic meant massive or huge because, you know, that whole atomic bomb situation, even though we learned about atoms in school, It wasn't until I started reading this book that I realized I've been wrong my whole life. As I started to listen to the book, I was like, wait, something isn't adding up with the title. Let me go find the definition of atomic. I think the author really messed up here. Yep, I'm a dummy. Massive is literally the perfect antonym for atomic. But that's one of the many benefits of reading. Remember my whole spiel about mental fitness and expanding your knowledge? Anyways... I was immediately blown away when I started reading this book. I'm a big note-taker when I read because, again, I'm not very smart. And although, in the moment, I think I'll retain all of the information, it never fails. Two months later, when I go to explain it, usually to myself when I'm talking to myself, the words and ideas come out fragmented. So, I've learned over time to take notes when I'm listening or reading. And I remember, almost as soon as this book started, I was grabbing my phone to take notes. Now usually, I just notate the high-level infos, so I'm reaching for my phone every 10 or 20 minutes. But with this book, I kept picking my phone up as soon as I put it back down. I just related to so much of what the author was saying, especially how it all ties to the Daily Five. Now I don't have enough time to do a full book report today. However, I do want to give you some of my key takeaways, but I would still highly recommend for anyone on a journey of self-improvement to read this book. So anyways, I'll never forget. He starts the book by talking about the British national cycling team in the early 2000s. It's actually a fascinating story, but the purpose of the story was to explain an idea called the aggregation of marginal gains, a concept made famous by the coach of the British cycling team. The idea basically illustrates how small improvements and 1% gains compound over time. And then I'll never forget what happened next. He uttered seven words that resonated so deeply with me that I felt like I was levitating above my house. He said, habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. Oh my God. That's it. I felt like I had just hit the jackpot on the slot machine. All of those sounds were going off in my head. He nailed it. And for those that don't know, I work in finance. So that analogy really was my jackpot. It was like all of the days and nights I've spent over the last five years experimenting and researching self-improvement were validated in those seven words. Then shortly after that, he said, You do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. Um, what? Is this dude Socrates reincarnated? If I was levitating before, I'm full-blown soaring through the clouds now. I literally felt like Superman. It's like all of my ideas were vindicated in two simple statements. And especially my most cherished idea, the Daily Five. I couldn't get enough of this book at this point. This is what I've been preaching to myself and others for the last five years. Create small daily habits. Fall in love with the process, not the result. He even explained my thoughts around the effort it takes and results not happening overnight. He calls the idea the plateau of latent potential and uses a frozen ice cube as the example. Essentially, an ice cube can sit in a temperature of 28 degrees and remain frozen. And even if you increase the temperature by 1 degree to 29 degrees, nothing will happen. Increase it again to 30. Nothing. Then again to 31. Again, nothing. It isn't until you increase the temperature to 32 degrees that you actually see a result, and the ice starts to melt. This is genius. This guy deserves a Nobel Prize. Another idea I really like from the book is the idea of setting yourself up for success. Now I know this seems basic and obvious, but hear me out. I've always done this, but I just thought I was taking the easy way out and looked at it as a negative. He explains it differently. His thought is that the best way to become more disciplined is to create a more disciplined environment. Meaning, disciplined people are better at structuring their lives to not require heroic willpower and self-control. Simply put, they spend less time in tempting situations. It's much easier to avoid temptation than resist it. I know because I do this with Oreos. I only eat sugar on the weekends, so I only buy Oreos on the weekends. There's no way I can have that package sitting in my house on a Monday night and expect the whole package to still be sitting there Tuesday morning. Optimize your environment instead of constantly using all of your self-control. And you can substitute my Oreo scenario with anything that's relative to your life. Which leads me to his last point, the law of delayed gratification. And he explains it simply yet effectively. And I really want you to think about this. When the immediate consequence is favorable, the later consequences are disastrous. And when the immediate consequence is challenging, the later consequences are typically favorable. And like he says at the end, the last mile is usually the least crowded. As always, I want to thank you for listening. Please follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Recovery Road Podcast for more daily content. And of course, if you or anyone you know needs help, please reach out to me at jareth at recoveryroadpodcast.com. Again, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in next week for Recovery Road, the intersection of life and sobriety.